Hello, and welcome to the Long-Term Investing Podcast with Baskin Wealth Management. I'm Barry Schwartz, Chief Investment Officer. Baskin Wealth Management is an independently owned investment management firm with over $2 billion in assets under management, providing customized wealth management solutions and services to families and foundations. In this podcast, we ignore all the noise and have conversations that make sense about the things that matter in today's markets. It's what we talk about with each other here in the office, and we want to share those conversations with you. Please stay tuned for our legal disclaimer at the end of the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Ernest Wong, head of research at Baskin Wealth. Barry's not able to be with us today, but I'm really happy and thrilled to have our founder and chairman, David Baskin, here with us today. Thanks, Ernest, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to do this because one of the things that we keep talking about on this podcast is to have a long-term mindset when investing. And, and you've certainly been in the markets for a long time. There's no question about that. I founded Baskin Wealth in uh, 1992, um, so more than 30 years ago now. And uh, really, the philosophy has been the same the entire time. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Um, like, what, what opportunity did you see in the markets and in the wealth landscape when you decided to, find, uh, to found the company? Well... When I started Baskin Wealth, the um, private wealth market in Canada was very small and it was very much attuned uh, to uh, what I would call carriage trade, mostly inherited wealth, people who uh, got rich the old-fashioned way from their parents and grandparents. And there were a handful of firms, maybe half a dozen across Canada, that monopolized the market. At that time, when we're talking over 30 years ago, the entry point was usually a million dollars or $2 million. So I saw an opportunity to offer customized wealth management to what I called working professionals. What I meant by that was lawyers and accountants, uh, small business owners, um, doctors, people like that, who before couldn't get into the high-end wealth management, so they were left with the full-service brokers or mutual fund salesmen. And, and so would, the, would they just basically have a brokerage account and, and, and a mutual yeah. fund salesperson would reach out to them and you can buy the... Yeah, they, they were really, um, I would say, underserved. Uh, at that time, commissions had started to come down, but they were still paying a lot they were getting a very much homogenized service from the uh, mainline brokers, and, or they were buying mutual funds and paying too much. At that time, there were big trailer fees, six or seven percent trailer fees, two and three quarters or three percent annual management loads on those mutual funds. So they were being underserved. So when I started Baskin Wealth, I had a much lower entry point. We started with a quarter million dollar entry point, and I thought that would attract the kind of clients uh, that I was interested in. Being a lawyer by training, I knew a lot of lawyers, people my age, and my early clients were basically friends. And uh, the quarter million dollar entry point was accessible to them. And that's how we got started. And we got started uh, building a track record uh, in the middle and late 1990s. 
And uh, by the time Barry joined me in 2000, uh, 24 years ago, we were still pretty small, but we were starting to make a bit of an impact uh, in the industry. How do you think wealth management has changed since that time, if well, at all? For one thing, it's much bigger. People came to realize that they were paying too much for too little at the mainline brokers, at the um, the bank-owned brokers. They were getting a very homogenized service where some guy at head office, some analyst, would say, well, we like CIBC. And every broker at RBC or Wood Gundy or Nesbitt Burns would then buy CIBC for their clients. It wasn't personalized at all. They weren't set up to do personal service. And it's very important to realize that brokers are not fiduciaries. They do not have a fiduciary duty to their client. Their job is to make money for their employer, which is not to say that they're unethical or immoral, just to say that they don't always put the client's interest at the top. Now, as you know, Ernest, in our business, we are fiduciaries. Our first duty is to our client, and our first duty is to ensure that they're not abused and that uh, we put their interests above our own. And that's, I think, the biggest thing that's happened uh, for the wealth industry is the uh, recognition that if you want a personalized service in which you're just simply not a cow to be milked, you need to go uh, to a, a portfolio manager um, regulated by the Ontario Securities Commission that uh, that does have a fiduciary duty. So we've seen a big proliferation. Since I started this company, uh, the number of uh, wealth management firms such as ours, not owned by banks or insurance companies, uh, has absolutely multiplied probably by 20 or 30 times in the last 30 years. And I think the the regulatory landscape has, has certainly changed to your point about uh, the fiduciary duty of wealth firms as well. Well, we we certainly are very highly regulated. And, um, you know, people started to recognize that Canada was a very high-cost investment environment. The trailer fees on mutual funds were absolutely a scandal. And uh, mutual fund salespeople were selling the highest-priced mutual funds with the biggest trailer fees to their clients because it was absolutely in their financial interest to do that. Clients were finding themselves locked in to bad mutual funds for five, six, and seven years because of the deferred management uh, charges, and they were finding themselves paying horrendous management loads of two and three quarters, three, maybe even three and a quarter percent per year on these mutual funds. So that was a bad solution. And um, we've already talked about the full-service stockbrokers. So when our industry started to take off and we were able to offer much lower management fees, I think when I started 30 years ago, 1.5% on the first million dollars was kind of industry standard and it started to decline after that. We were certainly a lot cheaper than mutual funds and usually cheaper than the commission-driven full-service stock brokerage industry. Uh, and we were able to sell the benefits of customized, individualized portfolios based on our own research. And I think you're still seeing that today, right? Like, even if you pull up a mutual fund from from any of the large firms, like a lot of their fir a lot of their funds are still charging over two percent. That's absolutely the case. And even though the um, uh, trailer fees, uh, the deferred management expenses, have been legislated out of existence. Uh, they still have very heavy distribution costs that they have to recover. 
And you're correct, one and three quarters, 2% is going to be twice as much as people are paying uh, firms like ours. So I think this is a, a good pivot into the investing. I think today it's a, it's a little bit of a, it's not very controversial to say that you own U.S. stocks, but that was certainly not the case when, when you started the firm, right? Well, so here's another conflict of interest that was absolutely understood in the industry. If you were working for one of the bank-owned brokerages, they made most of their money through underwriting. Uh, and of course, the firms that they were doing underwriting for were Canadian firms. So imagine that you were working for RBC Dominion and they do a big offering for Canadian National Railway, for example. You know, they sell, you know, $100 million worth of common stock for CNR. Well, their client is CNR and their first duty is to get that stock out the door at the best price possible. And if that means that they have to go to their retail brokers and say, we're stuck with $25 million worth of CNR stock we're having trouble selling, we'd like you to have your clients buy some CNR stock at the offer price. Well, that's known as stuffing the accounts. And the retail brokers would say, sure, I've got Fred here, we'll buy a thousand shares of CNR for him. It might not be in Fred's best interest. It might be that the price is too high or CNR is not the best thing for his portfolio, but it's in the interest of RBC Dominion to get rid of all that stock and keep their big client, the institutional underwriting client, happy. So that's what was happening. Now, of course, we don't do any underwriting. We don't have those kind of clients that we're selling stock for. We're what's referred to in the industry as buy side, and the brokers are referred to as sell side because they make their big money, first of all, selling stock for their institutional clients and then selling stock to their retail customers. Because we're buy side only, we try and eliminate all of our conflicts of interest. We've got no companies like CNR paying us to, uh, uh, to deal with their stock. Our only stream of income is our clients. So we have no conflicts. We can do our own research, which is mostly you and the other portfolio managers. And if we decide that CNR is a good stock for a client or some clients to buy, then we'll buy it. But we certainly won't just buy it because somebody's, uh, you know, telling us that we have to get rid of it. Right. So what did the portfolio in the, in the, in the early days look like for, for Baskin Wealth? What kind of names did you, did you own? Well, I have to say that back in the old days, our portfolios looked very different because the Canadian market looked very different. If you think of the names that have disappeared from the Canadian corporate landscape, they include huge companies like Inco uh, and Alcan and um, Inmet Mining, three companies respectively in aluminum, nickel, and copper, all gone. Um, uh, many more oil companies that have been um, uh, merged uh, with other companies and have, uh, their names are now long gone from the landscape. And uh, we were mostly at that time Canadian. We were just dipping our toes into the American waters. And this leads to one of the things I want to talk about, which was one of our very important decisions uh, in the period from 1999 to 2001. Um, you weren't in the business at that time, um, but that was when the dot-com um, explosion occurred. And everybody became very excited about the internet. 
and anything that had technology attached to it uh, took off like a rocket. Some of these companies still exist, uh, like Apple and Amazon, but many of them are, are now long gone. And many people lost all or most of their money uh, chasing the technology boom. So the poster child for Canada, of course, was Nortel. At that time, Nortel was owned 100% by Bell Canada. And um, Bell Canada became a huge stock on the Toronto Stock Exchange. When it spun Nortel out, which I think was around 1999, or possibly 2000, Nortel and Bell combined, I think, were a third of the entire TSX. And gigantic overweight. Uh, I remember that uh, when Nortel got spun out of Bell, it was sometime, somewhere in the mid-80s, I believe, per share. And uh, RBC Dominion had a target of $125 a share. Now, uh, Barry and I tried to do some analysis on that to figure out if there were any circumstances in which Nortel was really worth $125 a share. And we couldn't figure out where that value could possibly be coming from. So we did what a prudent an honest investment manager should do is we sold the stock, which was very much against trend. And we sold Nortel, I believe, around $100 or $105 a share. And um, of course, as you know, within three years, the stock went to zero. Um, so we avoided being caught up in the dot-com craziness. We never owned JDS Uniphase, another Canadian company that was very prominent in that. We never owned... Uh, research in Motion, which eventually became BlackBerry. Uh, we never owned Pets.com or any of the other uh, now long disappeared .com names from that era. So as a result of that, there were two consecutive years in which the Toronto Stock Exchange was down around 14% a year, I believe 2000 and 2001. We didn't get rich in those years, but we didn't lose any money either. And that really... Um, gave us real credibility with our clients and led to a lot of referrals. So that was, I would think, that was one of the things that really led to our success uh, over time. That was one big decision. Was there, like, I, I presume you didn't sell Nortel at the absolute top. Nope. So were there clients that were, especially given that you were a younger firm at that time, were there clients that were questioning the decision in making around why do you not own Nortel or why do you not own JDS Uniface? Yep, you're gonna uh, you're now gonna learn about the worst week of my career, um, which was in 2000 or 2001. I had a client, very influential client, who said, "You guys are crazy. You're owning these old-fashioned stocks like Inco and Alcan and the banks and the railways, and you're not owning Nortel or JDS or some of the American." ones. Uh, and you guys just don't get it. That's what he said to me. And that was the, uh, the phrase of the time. Either you got it or you didn't get it. He said, you guys don't get it. You're, you're locked in the last century and you should be owning all this new technology. He pulled his money and he led many of his friends uh, to pull their money. And we lost a third of our assets under management in one week. And we were not a big firm at that time. And that took us down to break even. Uh, even though our salaries were very modest. And as I say, it was the week uh, that really was the worst of my career. Now, of course, we turned out to be right and he turned out to be wrong, but that didn't happen instantly. That took a couple of years to prove out. 
Did he ever come back? No, of course not. <laughs> of course not. Um, so then that was that was 2001. How, so be, between 2001 and 2008, I imagine it was a... It was a period of rapid growth for us. Um, we, uh, uh, we had a number of things going for us. We had credibility because of that decision. We started to explore other uh, U.S. stocks. Um, and then we had an interesting thing happen. And some of the uh, older viewers will remember what happened to the Canadian dollar when Jean Chrétien was prime minister. Canadian dollar got down to 62 cents U.S., uh, more than a dollar and a half to buy a, uh, a U.S. dollar using Canadian money. And there were many prominent Canadian market figures who were saying things like, the Canadian government should abandon the loonie, we should dollarize, uh, same as Chile. <laughs> um, Canadians are crazy to own U.S. stocks because the loonie is going to go down to 50 cents and you're going to get decimated. We didn't believe it. We did our own analysis. We looked at purchase power parity, which is one of the ways to value currency. We looked at the relative deficit sizes uh, of the U.S. and Canadian economies. We looked at trade balances, and we thought, this is nuts. The Canadian dollar is worth 75 cents or 80 cents, not 62 cents. And uh, this is a trend that's going to reverse. So during that period, which was around 2004, 2005, we sold all our U.S. stocks. We said, we're, if we stay in U.S. stocks, even if we have the right U.S. stock, we're going to get killed by the currency. And that's exactly what happened. From a value of um, 62 cents, the Canadian dollar went to above par, briefly went to a dollar oh five, and that was driven by commodities. That was mostly driven by oil and gas, but also metal prices. And we were again on the right side of that trade. Uh, people who had all their money in S&P 500 or NASDAQ stocks, even if they had the right ones, got nailed by a 50% adverse currency move, and we didn't. We were on the right side of that trend. So once the Canadian dollar got above par, we started buying American stocks with both hands. And that was around um, 2006. And um, all of this, of course, took place before the great financial uh, crisis of 2008, 2009. But that was another lucky decision or smart decision or good decision um, that, again, increased our credibility and allowed us to get a lot of clients by referral. So this leads to 2008, 2009. Um, so, yeah, the great financial crisis. So going into the start of 2008, it was pretty evident to anybody who was paying attention that the U.S. real estate market was completely overextended. Um, these were the days of uh, so-called ninja loans, no income, no assets, um, and uh, uh, mortgages were being extended to people who absolutely didn't qualify, and the mortgage would then be syndicated into a collateralized debt obligation, which were sold all over the world to credulous investors. And we could see that this was a disaster waiting to happen. So we sold all of our American banks. At that time, we had big holdings in Bank of America and J.P. Morgan. And we retreated to what we thought was the safety of the Canadian market. Turned out to be an illusion, of course. Uh, the Canadian market got slammed just like everybody else. And I remember very well uh, the Thanksgiving weekend uh, of October of uh, 2008. Uh, of course, um, that was Lehman Brothers 
gone under, and all of a sudden Merrill Lynch was in trouble, and uh, uh, Washington Mutual was in trouble, and uh, and other big American institutions. That was the real financial crisis. And we lost in our portfolios around 30% to 35%, depending on the asset mix of the clients, which was not as bad as the S&P 500, which was down 50%, but it was nonetheless a big crisis for us. So I, w- I was not following the financial markets in 2009, but was it the same? I- I've read the stories, and were there fears that Canadian companies we're not able to access commercial paper, for example. Sure, the commercial paper completely locked up. Banks were terrified. Um, it led, of course, to interest rates falling close to zero. This was when the uh, central bankers all over the world decided to do quantitative easing. That is to say, they uh, they were buying bonds and uh, every kind of uh, mortgage obligation with both hands in order to reduce interest rates on long-term loans. Uh, Central bankers on administered rates drove them down eventually to zero and to negative rates uh, in Europe. And that basically saved the markets. But uh, in uh, the spring of 2009, uh, I had clients come in saying things like, I hear the stock market is going to zero. Uh, Stock markets don't go to zero. But uh, that was what they were worried about. Get me out at all costs. In the end... We had about 400 client families at that time. We had, I think, about 12 or 16 families out of 400 who either fired us or required us to liquidate their accounts. So 3 or 4%, which we thought was pretty much a triumph that we managed to keep 96% of our client base intact uh, during what was, by any measure, a, a huge psychological burden on everybody. So one of the things that's more interesting about the shift from the the early like the 2000s period to the post financial crisis is that as you pointed out interest rates is essentially went to zero so what was the decision making around asset allocation like how many bonds you have how many how much stocks you have like how did that change and how did those conversations look well you know we have a lot of older clients and prudence demands that you be more careful with the money of older clients so we would always like to have 30 or 35% of the asset allocation for older clients in bonds, but it became impossible because we couldn't make any money. When uh, reasonable quality bonds were paying a yield of 2.5%, if we put 30 or 35% of a client's money into those assets, it was going to kill their returns, absolutely. So we ended up with lots of older clients having 80 or 85% in equities, which didn't make us very happy. We felt it was too much risk. We tried to ameliorate the risk by buying high-quality dividend payers that would get the Canadian dividend tax credit. So we ended up with a lot of telephone companies and pipelines uh, and REITs and utilities. uh, And that worked pretty well. But also during this period, we saw that there was a big opportunity in the American markets, and particularly in the emerging uh, big tech companies like Apple and Alphabet uh, and, uh, and Amazon. And we started buying those names, uh, in a fairly big way during that period. One of the last things that we didn't touch on is there are certain things that Baskin doesn't invest in, right? There's a, there's, there's four categories of things, uh, which I'll let you talk about. And can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at that and how, how you think about that 
for well, our portfolios. So number one, I guess, is the obvious one we don't invest in is cryptocurrencies um, because we don't think they have any real value. To us, that's totally a um, a phantom market. It's just It's just people selling to each other because they all believe that things have value. We've yet to see a good use case for cryptocurrency and I'm with uh, the chairman of um, JP Morgan who says he thinks the whole thing is going to go to zero. I think, I think Warren Buffett thinks the same. Uh, so those are all trading profits. We're not a trading firm. We're an investment firm. We don't buy alternative investments. One of the big alternative investments that was uh, very popular when interest rates were so low were second mortgages and construction mortgages and bridge loans. Uh, companies, uh, prominent one in Ontario is Romspen. Um, we always felt there was much more risk in those kind of investments than was obvious. We're now seeing that play out with the bad real estate market where many of those companies have loans that are uh, in distress, properties that are in receivership and distributions are being cut. And in many cases, redemptions are being gated as to say, you're not allowed to, uh, to take your money out. Well, we never wanted to be caught in anything like that. Uh, so we didn't do it. We've never done derivatives of any kind which we think are more like gambling than investing, unless you use them for hedging strategy, which we don't because we're long-term investing. And we've never done short selling either. Uh, short selling to us, again, it does add liquidity to the market undeniably. In, there's no question there are opportunities now and then, but 75% of short sales are unsuccessful because the trend of the market is inexorably uphill. Uh, and we don't want to be involved in that kind of market timing. Again, that's more trading than investing. So maybe as a as a concluding question, how do you see? Obviously, Baskin has been tremendously successful over the last is it twenty eighteen years? Whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> how do you see the firm evolving over the next twenty? We think there's a continual need for the service that we offer. You know, I watch these commercials on TV. Uh, for these uh, robo-advisors and do-it-yourself who say, you know, if you're paying fees, you're giving up hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, that's presupposing that people have the knowledge to pick the right things, the psychological wherewithal to keep invested through good times and through bad times. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we know is that if you sell every time the market goes down, you end up paying capital gains, which is money you never get back, and you don't know quite when to get back in. So we think um, as my generation, the baby boomer generation, <coughs> continues to inherit money as our parents uh, pass away, there's going to be trillions of dollars of inherited money. That money is going to need a home. It's going to need people who are fiduciaries, who are paying attention on an individual basis, and who don't have conflicts of interest. So I think our future is pretty good. That's great. Well, thanks for being with us today, and we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Thanks, Ernest. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any forecasts on the economy, markets, or individual securities should not be viewed as investment advice, a recommendation or an offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Clients of Baskin Wealth Management and the speakers on this podcast may own shares of the companies discussed. Information on this podcast is current as of the time of production and is subject to change. If you have any questions or would like to subscribe to these podcasts, visit our website at baskinwealth.com.